Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Weird House Cinema. This is Rob Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And boy, we have got a treat for you today. One that has been a long time coming for me personally, because <laughs> we're going to be talking about a 1990. Oh, I've already forgotten the year. Was it 91 or 92? 92? I believe it came out in uh, 92. Yes. Okay. A 1992 science fiction film called Free Jack. And I have a personal history with this movie, which is that I have owned this DVD for approximately 15 years, and until this weekend, I had never watched it. I remember buying it for $3.95 at an East Tennessee used bookstore sometime when I was in college because on the cover of the DVD case, uh, it has a picture of Emilio Estevez holding some kind of futuristic-looking gun and then a bunch of very, very foggy future corridors, and then Mick Jagger looking very stern, like he's going to dole out some punishment. Anthony Hopkins holding his fingers in front of his face, like he's going to smoke a cigar or something. And mm-hmm. Rene Russo wearing like an MC Escher pattern. Yeah, I remember the VHS box art for this. I remember the the you know, the, the, the covers. Uh, I remember the trailer. Uh, it looks like it's going to be tremendous fun. It looks really badass. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, uh, I, I have a, a very strong memories of when this came out because I was 14 and, you know, I don't even remember what my favorite films were at that point. Um, you know, I guess it's post-Batman, so I guess Batman was still in the mix. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was, you know, exploring some more sci-fi, getting into that, reading sci-fi. And then I saw the trailer for Free Jack, and I was just convinced that this was going to be a great film. I got so excited about it. I'm, like, looking through copies of Newsweek to try and follow the coverage of Free Jack, and I was a little disappointed <laughs> when it wasn't there. You're like making a scrapbook, yeah. cutting them all out well, with a scalpel. Do, and, and I would do that with other films. Like, uh, really? I'd done, yeah, I'd done that with Batman. When it came out, I was like cutting out all these pictures. I made like scrapbook pages of it. I was so excited Whoa. about it. I did that with Dick Tracy. That's um, fandom. Yeah, and and then this came, and I'm like, let's do it. I'm down. This is the next one. This is going to be the, the the next film that I'm crazy for. And then it hit theaters, and I I remember I was I was calling my local theater in the small Tennessee town that I lived in, mm-hmm. and I was like, when are y'all getting Free Jack? When's Free Jack coming? And they they didn't have an answer for that because of course the answer <laughs> was Free Jack was not coming to a small town. Um, is Mr. Jagger going to be here for the premiere? Can I get him <laughs> to sign my uh, my poster? Yeah, well, I mean, you just I just thought it was going to be this huge thing. That everybody was going to be obsessed with. Turns out, people weren't obsessed with it. Turns out, this was a what a January release. Mm. This was a film that had experienced troubles. That was pretty much known, I think, to not be that good, uh-huh. and was just dumped uh, unceremoniously uh, in the January release uh, uh, window of uh, 1992. Yeah, flop eject season. Yeah, so but this a is, lot of good movies get released in the winter, though. By oh, the way, yeah. I, a lot of this is something that I think often happens with horror movies that should be released in October, but there is a there's just a sign of utter disrespect by the studios that release them. Uh, often good ones. I, I I don't know if the studio is is playing into it in this case, but like when uh, The Witch came out, I think it was released in February or something. Mm-hmm. Just utterly inexplicable. Why not in October? Yeah, I, I don't know. I you know as as much as I love movies and I love charting all this stuff. Yeah, I don't have as as good a head for 
other aspects of, of movie production and, and you know, and, and certainly the calendar of putting them out. Another mm. thing I don't usually have a good head for, I usually don't get obsessed with the budgets on things, um, but sometimes it's notable. And I was checking this one out. I did notice that this was a $30 million picture, which I, my understanding is that that was still quite a chunk of change for a film in 1991-1992. So this was a this was a big budget affair and certainly when we start getting into the connections a lot of of names were involved in this picture. Oh yeah. So this may be the most expensive film that we've yet covered on Weird House Cinema. This was a this was a mainstream shot. This was something that that was born to be a blockbuster but it just didn't happen. This is a parade of heavy hitters, both in terms of A-list stars. You had uh, Emilio Estevez, who was, you know, a big deal in the early 90s. You had Rene Russo, Anthony Hopkins, Mick Jagger of the Rolling Stones. But then also it's just filled out with a ton of great character actors in the in the mid-level roles. Yeah. Uh, you know, I don't think everybody's necessarily cast in a good spot. Right. And by the end of this uh, episode, I will recast the picture in a way that I think will work better or would have worked better. Uh but, but yeah, it's still it's still a very fun uh, picture to discuss. Has a lot of cool elements in it. Um, it's just everything doesn't come together like it should. No. Th- see, this one's – I think it's going to be a lot of fun to talk about. Ultimately, I think it's a little disappointing to actually watch. And one of the main reasons is um, the the weirdness and the absurdity is not concentrated enough. This yeah. it's, The movie goes on too long. It's stretched out too much. But we'll try to press it down into a diamond for you, the listener. All right. Well, let's let's go ahead and have that elevator pitch, Joe. Okay. So the pitch is in the early 90s, Formula One racer Alex Furlong is about to die in a fiery crash when he is suddenly time warped into the dystopian hell of the year 2009 (laughs) by mercenaries. Uh, under the command of Mick Jagger, a guy named Vasindak, and they want to sell his body to a rich dead man who's currently living inside a computer and needs a new meat vehicle so that he can live forever and and achieve his dreams. But uh, before the transfer to the new meat vehicle can take place, Furlong escapes, and now he is what is referred to in the future as a free Jack, and he spends the rest of the movie running around being chased by Mick Jagger and trying to put the pieces together. Yep. Now, before we get into the contents of the film itself, this this movie really does have something that I love, which is a good, crappy, early 2000s DVD menu experience. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I In fact, I was just talking to Seth before we started recording about how someday – Someday I almost want to do a whole exploration just of the genre of early DVD menus that tried to do too much uh, and and were really aesthetically repulsive and had strange sort of CGI animations. Uh, one of my favorites is the DVD menu for the movie Leviathan, which has exactly one animation. And it's just like a guy in a diving suit who sort of like does a half turn step and then pivots back to his original position and then does that <laughs> over and over forever. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, even the ones that were really well done, like I I think one of the first DVDs I bought and I wasn't I wasn't an early adopter on that technology, but mm-hmm. I picked up this double DVD uh special edition of Big Trouble in Little China, the John Carpenter uh-huh. film. And oh, yeah, yeah it, it was, they really put a lot of effort into it. You know, it's like so many different extra features, a lot of cool extra features, but then at times you're just kind of waiting for the, the graphics to stop doing things so you can actually <laughs> push play on the movie. Yeah. 
Um, yeah. So this one, it has these crappy CGI menus. One of the one of the features it has is a rotating CGI jack, like in the game of jacks. Mm-hmm. And I was confused at first because, again, I despite owning the CVD for like fifteen years or something, I had never seen it until this weekend. So I was like, wait a minute, does the title free jack refer to some kind of jack, like in jacks? Oh, uh, this is this. This would be the. Um What's it called? The spiritual, uh, yeah, um, um, God. What do they call it? The 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 spiritual, the spiritual switchboard. Spiritual switchboard. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, so it's a piece of technology that actually shows up at the end of the movie and looks exactly like a jack from a game of jacks. Oh man, I just realized it's a jack. Was that in, on purpose? I don't know. Like with the title, free jack. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Um, but then there's another thing on this DVD that was just caviar on my tongue. It was a menu option called Experience Our Website, <laughs> which when you click it, all it does is it takes you to a screen that shows you the URL of Morgan Creek Motion Pictures, which is www.morgancreek.com. And then you have the option to go back to the main menu. So you, you would have to like write it down on a sheet of paper and yes. then take it to your computer? <laughs> wow. So good. Anyway, let's hit some trailer audio. Alex Furlong is about to die. And enter the year 2009, where immortality is only a heartbeat away, where money can buy anything. Shouldn't you consider an alternative body? Sorry to deceive you. Including life itself. Lose your mind. And you can live forever. Free Jack. See, sounds exciting. Sounds great. Sounds Uh like it's going to be one heck of a movie. Right. If you'd been a kid at the time, you'd be writing your local theater saying, uh, make the Free Jack world premiere happen here. Yep. Uh, but so there are some key concepts in the film that we're going to have to explain now, I think, for this discussion to make any sense. And one of the distinctions that is that is most important is that between the bone jack and the bone jacker and the free jack. Right. So essentially, again, the, the, the whole idea here is people who died in horrific accidents uh, in the past mm-hmm. – a lot of times you know exactly when they died, where they died, and you know that there's like a catastrophic event, like in this case, a car wreck, uh, right. a race car wreck. Mm-hmm. So you know exactly where in time and space to reach back and steal their body. In other words, jack their bones. It's called <laughs> bone jacking, and the people who do it are bone jackers. Right. So they're bone jackers, and the person who gets bone jacked from the past to the future to become somebody's meat vehicle, that person is the bone jack. Okay. Do they call them that? that was, yes, I, was the, unst- I thought maybe they were just jacks, but they're called bone jacks. I think they're called bone jacks. So the victim is the bone jack. The verb would be to bone jack someone. And then mm-hmm. if you're one of these mercenaries who does the bone jacking, you are a bone jacker. Okay. But then if a bone jack gets loose, then all bets are off and they're a free jack. Right. It's like being so, a free agent. So then they have to try and either jack the free jack or bone jack the free jack in order to get them back. Right. For the bone jack. Yes. <laughs> yes. Okay. Yeah, that's right. 
But I was thinking about, okay, so the people who, who are the prime candidates for bone jacking in the premise of this film are, it's basically going to be anyone who died on videotape with like a precise time code. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, the time and place where they died and that's well recorded and survives into the future. So I realized like, oh, probably all of the people who are, who are first in line to get bone jacked are the people from the Faces of Death videos. <laughs> uh, but sometimes they don't actually die, right? Sometimes that stuff's fake, right? Oh, really? Yeah, I've never actually watched one. I just remember that was a thing when I was in high school or whatever. Hmm. What, th- this, if you don't remember, these were like morbid video cassettes of just like footage of people dying in, in various ah. ways. Yeah, I mean, I, and I guess it, it does help if it is a case where something blows up because then there's more, it's less mystery if the body suddenly vanishes, you know, right uh, sure. right before they would die. I mean, I think there'd still be a mystery. They establish in this movie that there's a mystery. Yeah, but there's a difference between, okay, there was a, a car wreck and we never found the body to somebody fired a bullet at JFK and then he vanished, right, you know, right. and then it turns out he was, he was bone jacked and now is a body for some like super rich dude in the future like that just doesn't make any sense that would be a huge incident okay so the film was directed by a guy named jeff murphy who is a new zealand film director who passed away in 2018 his breakout film seems to have been a new zealand road trip movie that i've never seen called goodbye pork pie but he had a hollywood period in which he directed films like young guns 2 which I didn't check, but I'm pretty sure that does star Emilio Estevez. It is. Yep, it is an Emilio film. Yeah, so connection there. Young Guns 2 in 1990, Free Jack in 92, uh, so you can see the connection there. Uh, But then he also directed a prestige period drama, I think about the Regency period, known as Under Siege 2 Dark Territory in 1995. (laughs) I've seen that one. That that one – has a, a terrible lead, but has it has some really talented people in it because Eric Bogosian mm. plays the main villain. And then I I want to say you have uh, Wait, who's Eric Bogosian? I've heard that name. Oh, Eric Bogosian. Uh, oh, he was he's been in a ton of stuff. You've definitely seen him in things. I think okay. he was in. Uh, well, most recently he was in Uncut Gems, but uh, mm. he, he's been in a ton of stuff. Uh, uh, yeah, he he was in another uh, Regency era drama, uh, Charlie's Angels Full Throttle, and <laughs> he was a voice. I just looked this up. He was a voice in Beavis and Butthead Do America. Well, yeah, there you go. He, he's he's an, an impressive actor, I, I would say. But uh, yeah, so I saw that movie. It also had Steven Seagal in it, of course. But yeah. what can you do? Yeah. But Jeff Murphy was also a second unit director for some big, you know, mainstream films like uh, like Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings trilogy. He did huh. second unit stuff. He did Dante's Peak, Triple uh, X, State of the Union. <laughs> All right, so yeah, he, he had a, a pretty solid career. Um, now, one thing about this film, this is something I didn't realize back in the day when I originally watched it, mm-hmm. and it was just kind of a creeping realization as I was watching it just the other day, uh, and it is that this was filmed, uh, I think, entirely in Atlanta, Georgia, in the city uh, in which we, we live, the city yeah. that we're recording this episode in. In and around, like you saw Peachtree in it, didn't you? Do you recognize suddenly when they're downtown and they're like, there's Marta stations and stuff? Well, by that point, I had looked it up. But early on in the film, there's just a lot of like, you're in 2009, it's in the future. Uh-huh. And everything's like kind of gritty and industrial in a way that plenty of parts of it, of Atlanta still are. So I was kind of mm-hmm. thinking, it's like, you know, it's kind of an Atlanta feel to it. And then I'm like, wait, I should look this up. And sure mm-hmm. enough, filmed in Atlanta. Of course, nowadays, everything's filmed in, in Atlanta or filmed in Georgia. So it doesn't really mean anything. But 
uh, you know, back back in the day, there weren't that many films filming in Atlanta, so it's it's kind of notable. This one has some of the exact same locations and streets featured in Baby Driver. Yeah, You're like you could you could compare Free Jack and Baby Driver and do some side by sides. Like they went to film Baby Driver and they're like, "Look, we'll give you the Free Jack package. This is what it consists <laughs> of." Uh, you know, another dystopian future movie that uses Marta stations. There were cut scenes from Escape from New York that were filmed yep. in Marta stations in Atlanta. Yeah, yeah. Uh, of course, the High Museum here in Atlanta was is famously where uh, Dr. Hannibal Lecter uh, was housed in Manhunter, um, the uh, the original adaptation of Red Dragon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so oh, yeah, played yeah. by Brian Cox. Yeah, yeah, a tr- you know. tremendous role. I, that was a really really fun film, as I recall. But of course, nowadays everything is filmed around Atlanta, so it, it's a, it, it can be excruciating at times. I find like I'm watching Cobra Kai, and they film like all of it in Atlanta, like everywhere. Like I expect to see myself you, you see walk out of house, my own yeah. house and take out the garbage <laughs> in the background in a scene, you know? Uh-huh. So it, it, I don't know. I, it it kind of takes me out of the experience sometimes these days, but it's fun with these older films for some reason. Yeah. So this was actually based on a novel, I think, but maybe loosely based. Yes. The novel, very loosely based on a novel by Robert Sheckley. Uh, he lived 1928 through 2005 and it was quite successful. The, the book in question was 1958's Immortality, Inc., uh, and originally, uh, I didn't I didn't have time to read any of this book, but originally the transit is from 1958 to the year 2110. So uh, much further in the, into the future. Mm-hmm. But uh, uh, anyway, oh, yeah, by shortening yeah. that length, though, that that dramatically changes what's possible with the plot in terms of uh, meeting people who you previously knew and them yeah. not appearing to have aged a single day in between. Yeah, so um, it, it's supposedly a good book. Um, I, I'd love to hear from anyone out there who's read it. Um, I, I read that it, um, you know, it does, again, doesn't have much to do with this movie. I don't think the terms free jack or bone jack are used at all in the book. <laughs> and uh, I think there's supposedly a sequence in it where a guy, the main character, gets in line for something and then finds out it's a suicide booth, which, of course, <laughs> is is a gag in Futurama in the first episode of that. Right. But, um, yeah, so uh, it, very loosely based on a novel. Uh, also, uh, there are a number of people that are credited on the screenplay for this. And we'll, we'll get back to one in a bit. But one of the people is Ronald Shusett, who worked with Dan O'Bannon on Alien and Total Recall. Ah, two great sci-fi scripts. Yeah. All right. Now we've got our lead, our star, Emilio Estevez, play, uh, plays the character Alex Furlong. Mm-hmm. Now, Estevez is, of course, the nephew of noted B-movie icon Joe Estevez. And, <laughs> like you lead with that. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, he's also the son of uh, acting legend Martin Sheen, uh, whose, of course, <laughs> real name is Ramon Estevez. So if you weren't aware of that, like Martin Sheen, that's his Hollywood name. His real name is Estevez. Uh-huh. Um, and, uh, yeah, so you, you know Martin Sheen from stuff like Apocalypse Now or Spawn. Uh, he's been fun- in everything. I was just thinking how funny it was that you don't you don't often put it together in your brain, or at least I don't, that, like, Martin Sheen, who played uh, the president on the West Wing, uh, who's this kind of, like, grumpy but kind, irascible fatherly figure, um, he's presented as this lovable nerd, is also the main character from Apocalypse Now and the villain from Spawn. Yeah. Um, I mean, he's he's been in so many different types of films. He's been in some some crap, um, you know, not as much as Joe Estevez, but, you know, but but he, he was in some really great films, especially early in his career. 1973's uh, Badlands by Terrence Malick. Wonderful picture. Emilio Estevez was uh, was, I guess, pretty young at the time this was filmed. I don't know exactly how old he was in his 20s, I guess. 
Um, yeah, I'm not sure, but he was certainly, he was chugging right along. I mean, he'd been in The Breakfast Club, uh, the Young Guns films, Repo Man, a Ooh. true cult classic. Yeah. Um, the Mighty Ducks. <laughs> uh, that came later, I guess. Uh, and then, of course, he was in Maximum Overdrive. So, uh-huh. uh, you know, he's been in, he, I think it, this was a movie that came out at a, at a time when he was, he was very much the sort of name you would put ahead of Mick Jagger on a film. That's pretty weird. So, I, I, of course, the thing that mainly drew me into this when I uh, picked it up at the used bookstore was that it stars Mick Jagger. And I had, I had no idea Mick Jagger had ever been in a movie at this time. Of course, Mick Jagger, the lead singer of the Rolling Stones, uh, it, I was so my, – my mind was so rended by the idea of him being in a movie at all. I wonder if that sort of prevented me from watching it in the years in between because I, I was almost kind of scared to find out what it was like. Like you were afraid that his performance would just be so good that it would change you on right. a fundamental level, yeah? How can you really make informed decisions about uh, about transformative change? Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> so. Yeah, Mick Jagger's presence in this film is is interesting. Um, Mick Jagger is, I think, you would call him an intermittent uh, actor at best. Uh, you look him up on IMDb, and most of his film credits are himself in concert footage. Yeah. Um, but when he does act, when he has acted, it's been all over the place. So his first screen role was in the was the lead in 1970s Ned Kelly, which um, I haven't seen it, but it does seem very much like, hey, we got this young fella here. He's the he's he's the front man of this popular band. Let's put him in a movie. <laughs> um, and then in 1986, he was in a film called Laughter in the Dark, um, based on a, a book by uh, Nabokov that I haven't read. Are you familiar with this one? Uh, I think I've heard of it, but I've never read it. Okay. And then in 1997, he was in an adaptation of Bent, uh, which is based on the play by Martin Sherman. This is about the persecution of of homosexuals during the Third Reich. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, very, very serious, very stirring uh, uh, piece of drama. Uh, And then and he'll still occasionally act in things seemingly when the mood hits him. But I think this is this may be Free Jack may be one of the few like really like big budget kind of action films that he pops up in. And I, I, I don't think he really has another appearance in his career like this. Uh, well, because one was enough, clearly. I mean, his role <laughs> in this uh, film uh, changed him. It changed the world. I, I would say probably my, well, I don't know. There are a couple of things I really did love about Free Jack. One was a just a, a spectacular scene with, uh, with Frankie Faison that we'll get to in a minute. But Mick Jagger also... He he really rules this movie, especially when he's not talking. Like he, he's he, best when he's not talking. <laughs> yes, it just reaction shots where he's wearing a spaceballs helmet, or a shot that suddenly cuts to him, and we get to see him in a coat with like gigantic ar- shoulder pads and you know ankle length dragging. Uh, it's his costume. It's Mick Jagger's costumes. Mick Jagger's reaction shots, and occasionally when Mick Jagger laughs at something, that yeah. this movie really kicks into high gear. He has absolutely has a great coat in this. Uh, his costuming is is phenomenal, but but yeah, I guess it's one of those things you can't help but compare Mick Jagger the actor to David Bowie the actor. Mm-hmm. And with David Bowie, you were able to in in I think most if not all of his film roles, the mystique of David Bowie the musical performer translated to the film roles that he he took on and and made them work marvelously. Like David Bowie was great in in, in everything he was in. I, I can't think of anything I've seen David Bowie in where I'm like, that was disappointing. But Mick Jagger, the you know, the calculus didn't work there. The the the, the transit was not 
successful. David Bowie's visual presence in a film is the equivalent of that the creaky lore theme from the soundtrack to The Lord of the Rings. You know, the like it really it conjures up the same kind of fog of the ancients. Yeah, absolutely. So we'll have more to say about Mick Jagger's performance uh, in this film as we proceed. But we should we should also hit on the fact that Renee Russo's in this. Uh, she plays Julie Redland, the love interest in the past that is also the love interest in the future. And say what you will about this movie or Russo's, I think, you know, perfectly fine, but probably forgettable for performance. But mm. she met her husband on this film. Huh. One of its many screenwriters was Dan Gilroy, who also went on to write and direct 2014's Nightcrawler. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, uh, so, uh, so no matter what you think of the picture, some good stuff came out of it. Um, Anthony Hopkins has a, a, an excellent check collecting scene in this film. Yeah. Uh, he, it, Anthony Hopkins is a fabulous actor, but this is, I would say you could show this, his scene in this movie as like the classroom textbook example of phoning it in. If you were trying to explain that concept. Yeah. I mean, he's not asked to do much. Um, no. His character from the get-go is dead and is just um, like brainwaves in a giant jack in the sky. Yeah. Uh, but but still, he's Anthony Hopkins, so he classes up every scene he's in yeah. and makes you believe it on a level that just Emilio Estevez is not capable of doing. <laughs> yeah, it's a little rough. I guarantee you that when Anthony Hopkins delivered his lines in the single takes of the scenes that we saw that made it into the final version of the movie, that was the first time he had read them. <laughs> well, for, yeah, I, I would not doubt it. Um, now, another um, actor that I think everybody will, will pretty much recognize uh, now that it, that is in it is Jonathan Banks, who mm. plays his character Michelet, 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 uh, yeah, Michelet. Uh, he's, he's like a, a he's like a creep. He's a, a a business executive. He's a suit. Yeah. So uh, yeah, Banks was born in '47. Uh, he's had a car- whole career of playing heavies with eyes you can't trust. He's got these. Yeah, he's got these mm-hmm. these eyes. You just look at him and you're like that that guy's bad. bad he's news. lying. Yeah. He's he was made to play like mercenaries and dirty cops and uh, you know thugs. You know that's like his whole thing. Um, he looks like somebody whose hobby is shoplifting golf equipment. <laughs> yeah. Now, everybody now uh, definitely knows him as Mike, first from Breaking Bad and then from uh, the, uh, the fabulous prequel uh, Better Call Saul. And he's tremendous uh, on those shows because it gives him a chance to be this cold, heavy, but also play this aging, emotional human being with, you know, uh, with, with human connections in his life. That was not always the case with the kind of roles that Banks would have because he's he's been in so many things. He often plays, again, like cops and heavies. He was um, Deputy Brent in Gremlins in 84. Uh, let's see. He was in a few episodes of Tales. Well, he was in one episode of Tales from the Crypt. He was in an episode of Highlander, the TV series. <laughs> he was in Deep Space Nine. He was a show regular slash lead on Wise Guy from 87 through 90. He was in Murder, she wrote. He was on Airplane. Uh, just so much stuff. Yeah. But his first screen role is a 1974 education short from the Los Angeles Public Library titled Linda's Film on Menstruation. Oh. Um, so it's, it's, it's worth looking up. Uh, you know, it's just an educational short film, mm-hmm. and uh, it's on YouTube, and you get to see baby Jonathan Banks in there playing like this gruff guy who doesn't understand menstruation. 
Oh, he's like a don't do what Donnie don't does. Yeah, like he's sitting on the couch and he's like, I don't understand menstruation. So that she, the, the woman in the room turns on the TV and there's an animation. Uh, there's a cartoon that explains it all. So. Oh, I see. Yeah. So he's, he's ready to learn. He's not somebody who's just like, just doesn't get it. Uh, yeah, but his face, he has that, one of the great things about Jonathan Banks is he has a great, like, smoldering look. Like, he's mm-hmm. great at, at just expressing that I don't, I don't really care what's going on here with my, with my, you know, just my eyes and kind of like the, the melting features of my face. So he has that going on in that scene. You can definitely see, it's, it forecasts everything to come in his career. Like, this is a guy that's going to play a lot of heavies. Fair enough. All right, so he's essentially your one of your sub villains uh, here, uh, one of your top three anyway. Mm-hmm. But then you have a whole host of additional players in this film as well. God, the cast is huge. Yeah, for instance, you have this character named Brad who shows up in the past and the future, played by David Johansson. Which, if if you're like me and you I don't know you grew up watching the right era of MTV or the right reruns of Saturday Night Live, then you probably will recognize him as Buster Poindexter. Oh, no, I know him as New York Dolls and Scrooged. Oh, yeah, yeah. That was one of his big screen roles in Scrooge. There's another great one, and that's Tales from the Dark Side, the movie, in which he plays an assassin in the Cat from Hell segment, which is based on a Stephen King short story. Oh, yeah, I remember that. Remember the cat, like, uh-huh. goes down his throat and jumps out his stomach? Yep. It's great. Yep. Yep. Um, <laughs> but he, but, uh, but, oh, but, uh, but he's great in this. Yeah, yeah, he, he's he's great. He's like what is uh, pit boss or something. He's somebody mm-hmm. he knows in the past, and then in the future he looks him up, and of course now he's in the hell city of two thousand nine America. Right. Um, this character Brad is just a low life who instantly betrays him yeah. and gets gets shot. Yeah, uh, Amanda Plummer's in this. Yeah, the daughter of the the late great Christopher Plummer, best known for she's probably best known for stuff like Pulp Fiction and The Fisher King. She often plays characters with a really fantastic, frantic energy. She's mm-hmm. a she's a wonderful character actor. I would say a wonderful, weird character actor. Um, she's also in an excellent episode of the '90s Outer Limits series that I recently watched, titled "A Stitch in Time," where she plays uh, the time traveling Doctor Theresa Givens, who like go uses her time machine to kill sexual predators in the past. Whoa. Yeah, so okay. um, she, she actually won an Emmy for that. Uh, she's great in it. Wow. In this, she plays a nun with a shotgun. That's right. I, I kept calling her sister shotgun. when I, I think that's her name. I, I can't remember what else it could be. Mm-hmm. Um, I think she's just nun, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's what she's credited as. Oh, let's see. Who else do we have? Okay, we have Grand L. Bush. Uh, plays his character Boone, who's sort of a, a corpo samurai, like right out of the cyberpunk yeah. uh, role-playing game and video game franchise. Yes, he's like a he's like a corporate executive slash bodyguard or like mm-hmm. mercenary type guy. Who so he's he's uh, in the corporate world, but he's skill he's got a katana and stuff. Yeah, he's always carrying around this uh, short uh, samurai sword uh-huh. and has a gun. He's wearing a big suit. Uh, yeah, so he's, yeah, like I say, right out of out of cyberpunk. So uh, I, I knew this guy best uh, from Die Hard in which he's one of the, the two FBI agents who come in. He's Special Agent Johnson. Uh, it's him and Robert Davi who are the, the two FBI guys. Oh, okay. Yeah, those are some, some – Davi's definitely a heavy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think I probably knew Bush best from playing Balrog in Street Fighter 2. Oh, no, Street Fighter. It's not Street oh, Fighter 2. It's just okay. Street Fighter. Yeah. Uh, the, the Jean-Claude Van Damme uh, uh, version of that. But, yeah, he's been in a bunch of stuff. So he was in Exorcist 3. He was in License to Kill. Uh, I think I remember him from that. 
Uh, basically, he did a bunch of 90s action. He was in Demolition Man. Uh, but make, make no mistake about Grandel Bush. He was a highly trained actor who did everything from Shakespeare and uh, to like 70 stage musicals, like rock musicals. Oh, he was in Hair. Yeah. Yeah, he was in Hair. He did uh, a lot of TV work. He did, uh, he did Roots. Uh, he was in The Color Purple. And again, this is the, one of the weird things about Free Jack is that it brings people together because okay. he like also Rene Russo. Met, yeah, he also yeah. met his wife, his wife of 26 years and counting on this picture. What? Yeah. Okay. So his his wife, uh, she was um, a journalist for BET, and she was on set to interview him about his role in this film. And magic happened. The the magic of Free Jack brought them together. <laughs> Free Jack. I mean, it just gets people in a place where they're ready to commit, you know? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Up next, uh, this is another like bit player in it. Uh, he just has one, maybe two crazy scenes. I think just one scene, but he's great in it. Uh, this is Frankie Faison, yeah. who uh, you might know best from playing uh, Burrell in The Wire, but he's mm-hmm. also Barney in the Hannibal Lecter movies. Uh, he, he's a great actor. He He's uh, very good at having like a kind of a calming presence, soft voice. Uh, but in this, he's exactly the opposite. In this, he's electric as this guy who gives, in my view, an Oscar-worthy monologue about rat-based cuisine and then a sort of Hamlet style to be or not to be soliloquy, except it's about an eagle who's trying to decide whether to commit suicide. Yeah, yeah. And his character is listed as Eagle Man. Yeah, um, that's his whole the thing. eagle monologue, yeah. Yeah, it's a yeah, this is the weirdest thing in the whole picture this scene. Uh Like this is Frankie's keeping it weird for us with this one. Um, But yeah, yeah, he's he's been in a ton of things over the years. He was a landlord in uh, 88's Coming to America. Mm -hmm. Um, But then in terms of sort of horror and sci fi stuff, he was in Chud. He was in Cat People. He was in Maximum Overdrive with Emilio. Oh, we got and, uh, sev- don't we have several Maximum Overdrive people in this movie? Yeah, I guess we do, yeah. And and then for another Stephen King connection, uh, The Langoliers, he was in that Oof. as well, that TV Oof. adaptation. Oh, maybe we should talk about that on Weird House. If we, if we ever want to watch a four-hour movie... Oh man, I never saw it. I just I read the oh, it's, novella. It's based on and loved the novella, but it, it is awful. It is, you know, made for TV, Stephen King stuff, late nineties, early two thousands, whenever it was that came out. It has unbelievably bad CGI monsters in it that just run oh, around man. eating up the screen, like the screen itself. They're supposed to be like the, the critters. Like they're basically Stephen King wrote the critters as time munching gremlin monsters. Yeah, my memory about it is that it's about a cast of people on an airplane who all have their own demons that get explored in flashbacks. And then also there are monsters that eat time. Oh, yeah. I mainly remember the monsters that eat time uh, from the, the again from the novella. Um, okay, one more bit player just to mention, and that's this guy, John Shea, who plays his character Morgan. Uh-huh. I don't know much about this guy, but his IMDb headshot looks so much like Jeffrey Epstein. Oh, God. I feel like he's destined no. for some uh, for a biopic there. He also played Lex Luthor on Lewis and Clark, The yeah. New Adventures of Superman. Yeah. Um, Music-wise... Uh, the score didn't really do anything for me, I have to admit, but it's by Trevor Jones, who scored a lot of 80s films that I love, such as The Dark Crystal, Labyrinth, Time Bandits, uh, and then in the 90s, he did uh, Dark City. Oh. So, again, nothing in this picture really blew me away, but I think his particularly his work in those Henson films was really, really good. Oh, I like I like his score on The Dark Crystal. Yeah, it um, really a great helps score. Th- that that driving pace in the film. Yeah. Uh, in fact, that that should come down to someday. I want to, 
I don't know, have a, have a good argument with somebody about which of the Dark City cuts is better because uh, – did I say Dark Crystal or Dark City earlier? I, you did, I think you said Dark Crystal earlier. Then you said Dark City, which got me excited because I had no idea there were different cuts. Of Dark City? Of Dark City. Yeah, that's what I – so there's one cut that is maybe artistically superior because it cuts out some kind of bad uh, voiceover narration at the beginning and a few other things. But the original cut has such great pacing, like it just drives and drives. Hmm. I don't know. Uh, right. we'll, we'll explore it someday. Yeah, yeah. It's, that's a fun one. Uh, but one of the things that I thought was funny about the music by Trevor Jones, so when you get to the opening credits of the movie, it is just CGI shards flying around the screen like an After Dark screensaver while you've got synth mm-hmm. saxophone music playing a tune that sounds a little bit like the melody of the Reigns of Castamir. It's <laughs> like a cross between Reigns of Castamir and then Vangelis and then Baker Street. Okay. And of course, the shards become the title, Free Jack. Uh, and, and then we immediately cut to swirling fog and silhouettes of trucks and jeeps cutting through this dark landscape with their high beams. And then in one of the greatest transitions in the movie. So you got that. You got the, the music playing and the, and the dark trucks over the horizon. And then immediately Estevez butt. You're just, yeah. just Joe Estevez's butt in like his alarm clocks going off. He's laying in bed. Whoa, and whoa, you're, whoa. It's not, not Joe Estevez. It's oh, did, what did I say? You oh, Emilio Joe. Estevez. Sorry. Joe Estevez would be a different, different That'd be even better. picture entirely. No, this is Emilio Estevez. You just like see his butt and he's wearing like green underwear and he's his alarm clock's going off and he's like, you know, and his sheets are tossed all over the place. Uh, and I don't know why. I didn't know at first why they made that choice to, to begin with his butt. But I think it's explained later on once you finally get all the premise wheeled out. Okay. I don't remember the explanation, but yeah, I'll roll with it. Like the the whole opening segment of this mo- section of this movie, I understand most of the choices they made. Mm-hmm. You know, like they want to establish who he is and what his connections are with people in the past, mm-hmm. and we want we want to have a bone jacking scenario that is susceptible to um, disruption. Mm-hmm. So it, ha- but but still, you're watching it and you're like, I would just wish they would go ahead and bone jack this guy so we can get to the future. It seems like we spend a lot of time getting to that point. Yeah, it starts off with Rene Russo and Emilio Estevez just flirting a lot. It's it's uh, almost overwhelmingly saccharine. They're just like mm-hmm. telling each other how much they love each other, and 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 he's like, I'll win that race, honey. You just watch again. He's a race car driver, and uh, and they're, they're talking about like, what will the other drivers' wives be wearing, and so. I think they're engaged again. Uh, Emilio Estevez uh, playing this guy Alex Furlong. That's his name. Furlong. He, yeah. He's the, he's a Formula One racer, and uh, and so we're we're watching all this sweetie sweetie time stuff where they're you know they're racing around a track in the daytime. Or Emilio Estevez is he's doing like training laps or something, and then we're cutting back and forth between that and him flirting with Rene Russo. And then Mick Jagger and an army of helmeted apocalypse goons driving their heavy machinery through the dark. And Mick Jagger is using this futuristic digital map to navigate to a precise point in New York. And then we get uh, Rene Russo and Emilio Estevez banter. It's uh, She's like critiquing his driving for some reason. And he's like, you drive your typewriter. I'll drive my car. And then she says, it's a computer. (laughs) 
and oh, and then very importantly, because it comes up later in the movie, Emilio says he won't race unless Rene Russo nibbles his ear in public. And they, they kind of him and haw about that. And then she does. And then they, they say how much they love each other. So all is well in the kingdom of 1991. Everybody's happy and in love and things are great. Little do they know, though, there is about to be a catastrophic car wreck, and right. then that's when the bone jacking will actually begin. Right. The bone jacking will begin. Oh, oh but we also – we meet uh, Brad, the manager. Remember, this is the guy from oh, yeah. the New York Dolls. Uh, Brad seems to manage Emilio Estevez and some other racers, and uh, he says things like, you do the driving, I'll do the jiving. And so he's going out <laughs> schmoozing with potential sponsors, I think. There's this guy who introduces himself with the name of the company. He says, like, champion spark plugs. And then – uh, Emilio is disrespectful to him and says like, hi, Mr. Plugs. And, uh, and so meanwhile, in the dark world, Mick Jagger and his goons are like rousting a bunch of, uh, post-apocalyptic, uh, future people out of their, their hovels and setting up a bunch of equipment to do something in this blasted future hell zone. And then we get Mick's first line, which is just, okay, let's do it. Yeah. It sets a, it sets the tone for the rest of the picture. Yeah. <laughs> like it, it instantly um, dissolves uh, the, the the magic of him just looking, just uh, you know, being there, grim faced and all in the cool coat. Right. Uh, so then Emil, uh, Emilio's racing. He, Alex is driving along, and Mick Jagger has a bunch of guys getting ready to do something. They're like guys wearing these reflective foil suits, and then there's a hacker guy who, of course, is wearing sunglasses inside while he's operating a computer. The hacker guy is named Ripper, and he's got these cool scars on his face mm-hmm. and they're locking on to a CGI version of, of Alex and then Alex's car flies off course in the past and it's about to explode in a fireball and then zap uh, just as the car explodes Emilio is time warped into the future and he appears on an operating table he's surrounded by the doctors and all the shiny tinfoil body suits and uh, it, this seems to be it's like some kind of mobile surgical center that's inside a giant truck, which just seems like a bad idea. Like, would you be trying to do surgery in like a truck that's, you know, like an all terrain vehicle? It's bouncing around all over the place. But anyway, well, I will I will come to the picture's defense here and say that this would make sense in the since you're you're jacking somebody's bones uh, mm-hmm. out of such a delicate moment in time. OK, the timing could be a little off. And right. what do you do if they come through and they have uh, like a head wound or or some sort of a laceration? Like you didn't get them quite in time. Mm-hmm. You need to be able to to um, to treat them immediately. So I, uh, that's my excuse. Okay, I buy it. Yeah, I mean it would be necessary, even though it's not ideal. It's just something you got to do if you're going to yeah. be bone jacking people. It's the price of bone jacking, right? <laughs> and so the doctors do. They they're trying to stabilize him. They're pumping in, you know, doing the CPR and stuff. They get his heart beating again, but then they realize, oh no. Emilio Estevez still has brain function. This is bad because he's not supposed to. So they're like, grab the lobotomizer, yeah. which is a blue glowing electric noodle that's flopping around all over the place. And I think what it's supposed to do is go up his nose and then dig around a bit and then give him an electric shock to the brain that will uh, make him complacent or wipe his brain or something. Yeah, it makes no, no, no sense at all because you just have something called like a mind wiper, uh, yeah. you know, and just use that because once you bring in the idea of lobotomizing, it makes it seem like this brain's not going to be worth 
putting somebody else's mind in if you're yeah. gonna if you're gonna screw with it and lobotomize it. But yeah, yeah it's confusing. Good point. Uh, but just when they're about to jab his brain, the Jagger convoy is attacked. Uh, people with guns pop up on rooftops all around. They start blowing stuff up. This knocks everybody over, and Emilio gets loose. And this is apparently very bad because immediately the doctors in the tinfoil suits start screaming, "Free Jack! Free Jack! Grab him!" And this leads to uh, to a big fight scene that involves the lobotomizer where Emilio has to, like, fight them off using the lobotomizer and he zaps them with it. And eventually he gets out of the medical truck. But, it, like, as soon as he's trying to escape, he turns back and then he locks eyes with Mick Jagger. And Mick Jagger just says, get the mate. <laughs> yeah, and he tells him, yeah, stunners only. Don't want him damaged. Right. And And I have to say... My, my, there are two things in this movie that I think absolutely three things. Mm-hmm. Eagle Man absolutely works. Mm-hmm. Mick Jagger's coat works, and then the stunners are pretty great. So these are the the rifles, these space age looking rifles that the uh, the Bone Jacker squad has mm-hmm. that seem to shoot like electro plasma pulses, and it looks really cool. Like this is definitely one of the things in the origin in the trailer and in the original promotional footage that that I bought into when I was younger. I was uh-huh. like, those guns look cool, and those that I that looks neat. They're shooting all these like blue uh, beams and all, because even though this film. This film's essentially cyberpunk, you know, or or cyberpunk made from cyberpunk derivatives or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, but one of the things you see <laughs> in so many visions of the future from this period, from like the '90s, is that everybody's just shooting hard ammo. It's just mm-hmm. a ballistic, um, you know, worship gone wild. And at times I watch that stuff and I'm like, I, I just I just want to see some laser beams and some uh, some some phasers and stuff, you know. Like mm-hmm. that's I I like sci-fi guns that shoot uh, fancy light beams at things. And so this film at least really delivers in that category. Well, it has both because the Bonejackers use the light-based weapons because they don't want to damage his body. They just want to immobilize him so he can be taken to the what the psychic switchboard or whatever is called spiritual switchboard. spiritual yes, switchboard. Yes. Um, but the, but the, ba- but other bad guys who just want to kill people, they use like ballistic weapons. Yeah. They don't care about keeping the meat neat. Right. But so here we, we get a big chase scene. He's running all over the place. At one point he gets in a taxi and then gets kicked out of it. Uh, and, and so Alex is running all over the place. Like he tries to go to Rene Russo's apartment. He's trying to find people that he used to know because he somehow doesn't realize that he's in the future. I think this is a pretty standard uh, accidental time travel or unwitting time travel trope where the person's mm-hmm. like, they just won't accept that the year is different. So they're running around trying to find things they know were person or a thing should be there but it's not and it's like what yeah yeah pretty by the books there's a lot of stuff in this film that is is is, is just by the books right for this sort of picture uh, but everywhere everywhere he goes people are like oh my god he's a free jack so everybody knows what this is this is a mm-hmm. it must be on the news every night it's like uh you know today three free jacks were apprehended um and uh, <laughs> hey, yeah, how often does this happen it's enough that there is a slang for it yeah and everybody's on the lookout for it like i feel like if this is on the bone jackers for just being kind of sloppy the bone jackers are really they're they are screwing up a lot it sounds like yeah and there, there's this dystopian pa you know like the future totalitarian society has pas everywhere that just blare stuff at people so it's it's going like everybody off the street there's a free jack at large anyone on the street will be fired upon 
Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, we see the truest sign of dystopia, which is a giant digital billboard. And yeah. it says, <laughs> welcome to New York, Thursday, November 23rd, 2009. And then Emilio looks at it and he's like, what? And then there's this great moment where he pulls out his like race ticket from his I don't know, from driving earlier that day to see uh-huh. the date. And it says 1991. And it's like, it's as if the movie is suggesting that he was actually thinking, wait, was it 2009 earlier today? Better check. Well, the movie implies and at times expressly states that that uh, Emilio Estevez's character is not the, the sharpest knife in the drawer. Right. Um, I yeah. think Anthony Hopkins character refers to him as a dullard at one point. So, yes. Um, <laughs> Yeah, he's uh, yeah. It, it, he needs to check. He has to double check to to, to see what year it actually was earlier today. Uh, so later we meet some corporate creeps. They're like in a giant elevator that's going up millions of floors in a skyscraper that reaches up to the clouds. Uh, they're 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 in this weird skyscraper that looks like a combination of an office and a church. It's like the mm-hmm. cathedral of business, you know the the basilica of Saint Dickfold. Um, and uh, uh, so one of the suits is Jonathan Banks. Again, that's Mike Trout from Breaking Bad, who we were talking about earlier. And here we get a bit of exposition dump. They start explaining that they're they're trying to break the bad news about the, the bone jack getting loose and becoming a free jack to a guy who is wearing a ghost of Christmas yet to come hood. And yeah. they're like, sorry, Gramps, your bone jack got away. And then they're they're explaining, uh, actually, we've got even worse news. The spiritual switchboard can only hold you for another 36 hours. Shouldn't you consider an alternative body? And the guy in the Ghost of Christmas Yet to Come hood is like, I don't want an alternative body. I want this one. And then there's a reveal, and it's hologram Emilio Estevez. <laughs> And here I think it starts to make sense that the first thing we see in the movie is Emilio Estevez's butt because it seems like the quality of his body in particular, I guess including his butt, compared to other future bodies and butts uh, seems to be relevant to the plot. Like only that butt will do. I guess. I wonder what if the other Free Jack on hold, they had Joe Estevez. Yeah. And they're they're like, come on, we got Joe Estevez ready to go. Close it's like, enough, no, yeah. Emilio, it has to be Emilio. I don't want Joe. I don't want Charlie. I don't want Martin. It's got to be Emilio. And there's actually another reason for that that we'll get yeah. to later. Oh, but then we get a, a scene that's a meeting between Mick Jagger. Again, he's playing this this mercenary named Victor Vasendek with uh, with Jonathan Banks. They like meet up to scheme together. Yeah. So two things about this scene. First of all, the office set is incredible in this. Yes. This is one of several interior sets that that are in this movie that are really cool. Like they just like they went crazy with art decorating it. And mm-hmm. like this one has like this crazy fractured redstone wall behind them, uh, which is really good. I, I appreciate that. But then the actual scene, the actual energy between Mick Jagger and Jonathan Banks, it's just weird. Like, and it seems like the casting is so off. So Jonathan Banks here is playing like the sleazy boss who owns Fabergé eggs. <laughs> yeah. And and Jagger is playing like the, you know, the the badass warrior with a code. And it just feels like it should be reversed. Like Mick Jagger is the type of guy who owns Fabergé eggs. Yeah. Jonathan Banks is your mercenary. Uh, you know, Jonathan Banks is great in this anyway. And like Banks totally delivers. He knows what he's doing. So he's, yeah. he's perfectly fine in this role. But... I, it feels like you could just swap these two and you would have been a better place. I kind of agree with you there, yeah. Except that would have given us fewer chances to see Mick Jagger wearing the Spaceballs helmet. True, true. 
And I don't think it would have saved the picture in any uh, way. But but yeah, this scene is is pretty great in a, a dumb way. You got like basically saying like you were supposed to bone jack that guy, and it's like I tried. Now he's a free jack. You're off the case. No, I'm still going to bone jack that guy. <laughs> I always bone my jack. Um, basically. Yep, that's pretty much it. He tries to fire him. Uh, Mick Jagger's like, no, uh, you can't fire me. Uh, You know, yeah, I'll I'll get that meat. (laughs) A funny thing, uh, Rachel was watching parts of this with me, and she pointed out that Mick Jagger's delivery in these scenes is very late season Cersei Lannister. Oh, what what do you mean? Just the kind of like vindictive, cold frown and similar delivery. I I, I don't know. I mean, I saw it when she said it. No, no, no. I can, I could get that. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But this is going to be one of the ultimate, um, like, weird things about Jagger's performance is that what he gives us here in this scene is not what we get later on. Like, no. he, his his performance is just all over the place. Like, he's a cold professional uh, in one scene, and then he'll be something completely different in another. Yeah, I can't wait to talk about the scene where he's like doing hacker tricks on on a car on a wine yeah. delivery truck. Yeah, he becomes the Riddler out of out of the blue later on. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, uh, Alex ends up taking refuge in a church, sleeps on the floor in front of the altar, is ambushed by Amanda Plummer in the form of Sister Shotgun. She pulls a shotgun on him, uh, and uh, and they they meet. They talk about things. She is shocked to learn that he's a free jack. Mm-hmm. They argue about this. Like she. Yeah, she seems skeptical that he's a free jack, and then he explains things to her, and she eventually ends up trying to help him. Like she's she explains the whole bone jacking premise. We also get like more exposition dump from from her, and he's like, "What? So they were going to do a brain transplant on me?" And she goes, "No, a mind transplant." So <laughs> this movie is firmly dualistic. Yep. And then she helps him find the address of somebody he knows. So she sends, she arms him with a gun and sends him off to meet somebody. Uh, but then we should cut back to the, the whole time. We're also cutting between Emilio Estevez and Mick Jagger. And there's like a great scene with Mick Jagger hanging out at his apartment with his buddy. Yeah, yeah, uh, his buddy Ripper. And this is another great interior set with like really strange art on the walls. And it it looks lived in like it it was really well done. Yeah, there's Um, a a red couch, backlit white walls with masks all over them, like a strange rectangular clock, a mounted revolver and cutouts from pinup magazines. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, strange. I I didn't know how to take And I also couldn't tell if like Ripper... And Jagger's character was supposed to be like, like, are they, do they live together here? You know, like I was expecting like some more development there and then we didn't get it. So I guess maybe they don't, they just work together. Yeah. Uh, but because then they just talk about the business of bone jacking. Right, exactly. Ripper is played by Isai Morales Jr. who, and he's the hacker who was wearing sunglasses inside earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, and we find out Mick Jagger has a lie detector computer that he tests out on Ripper. And then I don't recall this ever being used in the film again. It's being set up as if it's like Chekhov's lie detector machine. Did you did, did this ever come up again? No, it, yeah. I don't think it did. <laughs> okay, just another just case of, of kind of wasted space. Totally pointless. Yeah. Yeah. But then the next thing is really while uh, while Emilio Estevez is traveling to meet his old manager, Brad, the, the New York Dolls guy. Uh, he wanders through 2009 New York City, and this is this is trying to give us some of the texture of the future. Yeah, and it's just your basic 80s hell city take on New York City with right. lots of sex clubs. There's a weird future car transporting chicken cages across town. Oh, yeah, I liked that. 
Uh, but it's also like cheesy medieval movies, like, you know, Braveheart or something, in that anybody who's not a CEO just has dirt smeared on their face. Yep, yep. And then, of course, we get a street gang, like a warrior's uh, escape from uh, from uh, New York-esque street gang. And it's yes. it's super confusing, too, because the, 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 the gang we see, like, there's this— um, this this African American gentleman and he has a helmet on that has both a Confederate flag and a swastika. Yeah. Um, they just like threw everything at the the helmet, and I, I have no idea what these guys are, what their deal is, except they like to shoot guns in the street. I don't think it makes any sense. It's sort of an unspoken convention of dystopian Hell City sci-fi that the people of the future use the political symbols of the past with no particular meaning or coherence. Which, in a way, in now a that way, I think about yeah. it, that's I think that, that's events. kind of true over time. Yeah. People just use symbols of the past with clearly without understanding what they mean at all. Yeah. But ultimately, these this is this is just action he's moving through anyway to get from point A to point B. Right. So Alex meets up with Brad, and and Brad's like, "Oh wow, you're a bone jack, or I mean, you're a free jack." And so uh, they they're <laughs> hanging out, and I love how they're in Brad's apartment, and people you just hear people constantly getting shot and screaming outside the window. <laughs> Sounds like the yeah. future, the 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 wars out in the streets never stop. Yeah. And Emilio Estevez is like, well, why me? Why why do they need my bones? Why am I the bone jack? Why can't they just take somebody else's body? And, oh, yeah, because that's a great point right. at, that you don't think about the, until this point. Exactly. Uh, and Brad's like, well, the answer is obvious. You're clean. You're from the past. So you haven't been exposed to all of the pollution and drugs that have ruined everybody else's body in the future. Plus, uh, everybody who's alive today has been living for years without an ozone layer. So, yeah, the ozone layer is gone. So this makes me wonder, is this part of the pre-Highlander 2 chronology? Oh, um, yeah. Because it's set in, what, 2024. Uh, so I think it could line up. This movie has a lot in common with Highlander 2, actually. Yeah, and uh, I, not as good. Not as good as Highlander <laughs> not 2. Not as good. I, well, I would say, uh, actually, it's better than Highlander 2, but Highlander 2 is better to watch. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I think I, I would say it's better than Highlander 2, but... You mean uh, you'd say Highlander 2 is better? Highlander 2 is a better film. Okay. Uh, and also a better viewing experience. Um, but, uh, but anyway, it, it's still fun. It's, um, so, yeah, we continue moving through the city here. Even more dystopia, cyberpunk tropes are rolled out. You know, big business controls everything. Japanese uh, businesses have this superiority. Uh, environmental disaster, future drugs, bodies for sale, immortality for the rich. Uh, it's just checking off all the boxes. It's all there. Uh, yeah, and l- like every other sci-fi movie from the late 80s and early 90s, it assumes that Japanese corporations are soon to take over the United States. Just, yeah, every- Everything. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so the, the Japanese business panic is – which actually was in Die Hard too, I, I seem to Oh, yeah, was it? Okay. It's a pervasive assumption of the movies of the time. You know, speaking of cyberpunk, I've been I've been playing the cyberpunk 2077 game. Oh, really? Yeah. And mm-hmm. and that's one of the interesting things to engage uh, in with it is to think about like this is a very – it's a very 1980s vision of the future. That really doesn't match up in many ways with sort of modern <laughs> sensibilities and all. And uh-huh. yeah, you have all that stuff like the like Japanese business panic that are a part of it. And yeah, it's 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 weird to, to think about. Well, that that panic plays into the first scene where we meet Renee Russo of 2009, who I will say looks exactly the same as she did in 1991. She literally mm-hmm. does not look like she has aged a day. 
So I guess maybe she has not been exposed to the sky without ozone or something that's, that's ruined right. everybody else's his body in the future. Uh, but she is now a high-powered executive at this corporation called McCandless, which is the biggest, most powerful corporation in the world. And she is colleagues with Jonathan Banks, with uh, this guy Michelet. And Rene Russo is doing some top-level negotiation in Japanese with, with uh, these representatives from a Japanese corporation. And the executives across the table, eventually after they negotiate, they're like, the mineral rights are yours. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the CEO of the McCandless Corporation – is Ian McCandless, played by Anthony Hopkins. And he video calls Rene Russo. He's like, congratulations on business. Now do more business. Now, I don't recall, do we know McCandless is actually dead and that he's the patron looking to uh, get inside this bone jack body? So technically, no, that is a spoiler that is revealed at the end of the movie that the, the person looking for Emilio Estevez's bone jack body is actually Anthony Hopkins, but you are not supposed to know it at this point. You're supposed to think he's still alive and just communicating with her through video phone calls. Uh, but no, it's absolutely obvious. I had never seen the movie before, and I was like, okay, Anthony Hopkins is the person who needs uh, the, the Estevez body. Okay, see, I couldn't remember if like the trailer spoiled it for me or marketing material back in the early 90s, but I feel like I always knew. Like There was never a, a twist here for me. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a thousand percent obvious. Uh, so then you're back to Brad and Alex walking around. They're trying to find Rene Russo. Brad's trying to help him find her because it's like, oh, once you know she sees you, she'll she'll help you. Uh, and so Brad takes Alex to a diner where, for some reason, people start pointing guns at each other, <laughs> and uh, and then you find out it's a double cross because Brad told his told Alex that he was going to help him find Rene Russo, but instead he just calls up the police to collect the bounty on his old friend. Yeah. And again, this is a whole section of the movie that takes way longer than it needs to. Yes. Uh, and this turns into a car chase. Emilio Estevez driving a police motorcycle around, driving through restaurant kitchens. Uh, I see some familiar Atlanta streets in the scene. Uh, and eventually Alex like crashes through a checkpoint and he we, we get to see some of the roads and stuff. But he, he's going to uh, Rene Russo's apartment. I have to say I like they have a mix, uh, an appropriate mix of some old looking conventional cars, but then also some snazzy future cars, not mm -hmm. flying cars, road based cars, but futuristic in appearance. Most of the cars, uh, or at least the nice looking cars in the future are covered by some kind of single piece fiberglass carapace. Yeah, which w seems like a good solution. You know, yeah. you don't have to completely redesign your space cars from the ground up. You just get some sort of sleek body to put on top of it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it ends up looking pretty good. It's just a Honda Civic with a big one piece top on it. Yeah. Yeah. They're essentially parade floats. Right. Really. Uh, also, though, horses and carriages in the future. There's lots of horses and carriages all over the place. Huh. OK. Yeah. I forgot about that. But uh, Alex goes to Julie's apartment. Julie is Rene Russo. He breaks in. He's like, hey, I'm I'm here. I got bone jacked, you know, but now I'm a free jack. And they argue. Let's pick up exactly where we left off. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So uh, I don't know. 17 years or something have passed for her. It's been uh, I haven't done the math right. Whatever. Some number of years have passed. And he's just like, hey, you know, how are things? And she she freaks out. She doesn't think it's really him. She thinks that somebody else has bone jacked his body and is now trying to trick her. I want to see a remake where the Rene Russo character is totally not into this. And she's like talking to her husband or her yeah. partner and she's like, 
Yeah, God, my my ex-boyfriend from 17 years ago, turns out he's a free jack, won't leave me alone. I've told him, like, that was 17 years ago, like, uh-huh. life moves on. I'm sorry you went through this, but I cannot help you. Right. I've got and my own life And that's the end now. of it. I, I'm an executive at McCandless. I don't have time for this. Yeah, like, you. yeah, you were a mistake 17 years ago, and I really am not about to pick that same mistake up and run through the, the streets with it. That would have been an amazing direction, but no, instead she's just, like, single and... At first, she's skeptical, but you know what's going to happen. Come on. Yeah. Uh, and then this turns into a, a car chase. Mick Jagger, like, finds Emilio Estevez at her apartment. And then uh, he he starts chasing him down in this red land boat that is just hilarious. Uh, but Alex hijacks a truck full – I think it's like a wine bottle delivery truck. It's full of these neon green bottles of wine. So they do a car chase around. We see a Marta station. And then there's one of my favorite parts of the movie that was really funny was when um, inside- I have to say real quick, though, I have to say about that wine vehicle. Yeah. Uh, I'm watching it um, this time. I instantly thought of Amy Sedaris's uh, regional wine lady, um, uh, Ronnie Vino from uh, from her uh, television series at home with Amy Sedaris. And I'm oh, like, I don't this know is this. what she drives. Oh, yeah. Oh, she's this hilarious character that goes door to door selling wines. Uh, but, like, this has to be um, Ronnie Vino's vehicle that that is stolen here. Well, I'll have to check that out. Uh, but anyway, I thought this scene was funny for multiple reasons. Number one is that, uh, yeah, I understand Alex Furlong, our protagonist, is supposed to be a race car driver. So it makes sense that he would have some skills at evading these mercenaries uh, no mm-hmm. matter what he was driving. But still, it seems implausible. He's just fully outmaneuvering a fleet of police interceptor vehicles and these like mercenary motorcycles and stuff in a delivery truck for like full of, you know, neon green pole masson. Yeah. And oh, and it's got a laptop inside the cab where he's driving that Mick Jagger keeps coming on, like popping up on the screen on the laptop yep. and harassing him while he, while he's driving and saying like, you can't get rid of me that easily. And he'll try to close the laptop and then it'll just mm-hmm. open up automatically. And, and Mick Jagger and will Mick be Jagger's there laughing. again laughing at him. Yeah. Again, he's suddenly, his character's suddenly the Riddler or something, you know, it's like a complete shift from what it was earlier. And the mercenaries who work for Mick Jagger, they're all dressed like space balls once again. Uh, mm-hmm. Eventually, Furlong escapes this scene by jumping off of a bridge into water from a height that would absolutely have killed him. He drifts down the river, I guess, and he ends up uh, he ends up washing up on a dock somewhere, and he meets Frankie Faison, uh, who we mentioned earlier, who's just hanging out at a dock next to all this toxic water, and he's eating something. He tries to share his food, I think, but he's like, yeah, this is a sautéed river rat, and then they have a fantastic conversation about the best way to cook river rats. And then this goes into this monologue about an eagle that really doesn't make any sense. But I would say acting prize for the movie goes to Frankie Faison. Well, and it works, too, because the kind of monologue you'd expect to get from like a crazy person, um, you know, that lives under a bridge in the, the in a dystopian future, mm-hmm. like it shouldn't make sense. It should. Yeah, right. It should have this sort of raw energy to it that's kind of muddled uh, by strange thinking. And it totally shines through. It's, it is the best scene in the whole picture. It's like simultaneously incoherent and wise. Yes. Yeah, and in that very sagely, you're like, yeah. I don't know what he just said, but it, I think it was really important, and uh, and I will I will buy him. It's the same trick that shaman throughout history have used, and uh, Eagle Guy is no exception. Yeah. 
But anyway, uh, so we, we come back to Rene Russo and, and her, uh, her colleague Boone, who, again, this is uh, Grandel Bush. They, they go looking for Alex in the slums and uh, they sort of make up, right? Rene Russo's like, if I'd known it was really you. Uh, and so they're, they're happy now again together. She, she believes it's really him. And she's, she's going to help him free Jack. She's going to help him escape somehow. And her plan is – oh, and they they see a digital billboard that's like, oh, the bounty on him is now $10 million. Yeah. Um, but the plan is that she's going to meet up with a fancy friend of hers named Morgan at the Mos Eisley Cantina of 2009 New York. Uh, it's like, you know, very much New York's hottest club is Free Jack. And so they go there and she's going to go meet her friend who apparently helps people escape. I don't, I don't know why she knows a guy who just helps Free Jack's escape, but she does. And meanwhile, Emilio Estevez is just sitting by himself at the bar. He drinks something that the bartender gives him and this like messes up his brain. And then Mick Jagger's real life wife at the time of this film, or at least his partner, I, I think their marriage was later annulled. Uh, her name's Jerry Hall. She is also in the movie and she shows up as a TV interviewer who like walks up to Emilio Estevez and is like, Hey, what's going on? And then they realize like, Oh, this is that free Jack. Everybody's looking for. And they put him on live TV and he starts quoting Arnold Schwarzenegger from the Terminator. Yeah. It's actually pretty great, you know, because it, they just went ahead and had um, the, the furlong character just get totally wasted. Like, uh-huh. like he's, he's a kind of a dumb, dumb. And this, this expresses it. You know, he just, he drinks too much of this bar. He's out of it. And he just starts gabbing to the, uh, to the journalist here. And she's like, roll it. We're, we're going to get the ratings tonight. Right. Uh, so I actually kind of like this scene. A weird connection is that, so she was, I think, married to Mick Jagger at the time, but Jerry Hall is now married to Rupert Murdoch. Yes. That Rupert oh, wow. Murdoch. Wasn't she also in Batman? Wasn't she the 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 char- the model character that uh, Jack Nicholson's Joker uh, scars with acid? I think she was. Oh, I don't remember that. Yeah, yeah, I think she she popped up in a number of films during that period. All right, so from here we go to to Morgan's apartment, which, which and once again, yeah. once again, some great interior decorating. Yes, giant foot art. He just has these like twenty foot tall feet sculptures in his house. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, very cool. Yeah, uh, and I really think we should credit where credits due. First of all, for Mick Jagger's coat, Lisa Jensen <laughs> was costume designer on this film, and then art direction for the film was James A. Taylor, set direction by Bruce A. Gibson. So, really, without this bunch, I- I'm not sure what we would be looking at in these scenes. I agree. So, I I think they're just negotiating like that they're going to get him out of there. Like Morgan's going to arrange for him to escape somewhere. And yeah. then, and then there's a love scene, of course. Uh, Emilio Estevez and Rene Russo, they, they're, you know, they slip into something more comfortable, and, and there's some saxophone playing in the background. And you get all that. Yeah, but again, more of just wasted space in this film. Like yes. this, this again, previous scene, wasted space. Then there's this, and yeah, could really trim this down. Yeah, uh, there is something that's utterly inconsequential to the rest of the film, but a good B plot scene where Amanda Plummer just kicks Jonathan Banks in the testes. Uh, yeah, and they really milk it. Like he does the classic sinking to the floor, moaning with his eyes rolling back, kind of thing. 
Yeah, it, it accomplishes nothing, though, for the plot <laughs> or for these characters. Yeah. Like, I don't really know why we bothered with this. Uh, so Emilio Estevez is getting ready to escape. Uh, he's going to, to a boat and he's going with uh, with Boone. I remember Grand El Marsh. Uh, and they're mm. walking together and Boone is explaining that he has become a people to the city. He, like he inspires everyone because he is a free jack. And the people are like, wow, uh, I guess if he could be free, I could be free too or something. Yeah, it's it's a little flimsy. Like, clearly, they had to establish why Boone would help him yeah. if there's 10 million. And, and I think it's supposedly more at this point. It keeps going up. Like, uh-huh. there's a tremendous amount of money on the table for this guy. Why are you helping him? And he says, well, you inspire my grandma. Yeah, that's you know? right. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll buy it. I'm not happy about <laughs> grandma, it, but I'll buy it. My grandma loves you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so they're supposed to go get on a boat, but then bam, boat explodes. It's a Jagger ambush. And then it's a double, double cross because Jagger is trying to capture Furlong alive. But then these other dudes show up and start shooting at Mick Jagger and shooting at Emilio Estevez. And I think Boone is like, uh, those aren't bone jackers. There's someone else in the area. Uh, and so they're all they're all running around. You find out Boone has a katana and he's like a total badass and he fights people. Yeah, I mean, basically, you have Jagger's bunch wants to finish the bone jacking contract, and then Jonathan Banks's bunch, they don't want the bone jacking to take place because they don't want Anthony Hopkins to get his new body because then he's still in charge of the company if that happens. Yeah. We uh, don't really learn that till later, but that's what we're building up to. That's right. We find that out from Jonathan Banks in a big, another exposition dump scene. Um, but everybody's running around chasing, shooting at each other. There's a big fight scene between Emilio Estevez and a large, strong bone jacker who gets electrocuted uh, during the whole sequence Mick Jagger is creeping around in a hilarious helmet uh, but then there's a scene where where Furlong has a chance to kill Mick Jagger but he doesn't he he lets him live he spares his life and for this Mick Jagger uh, Mick Jagger gives him a head start he's like I'll let you escape because I'm a man of honor you're a man of honor and he starts counting and Mick Jagger says one Mississippi two Mississippi <laughs> I mean, this ridiculous. Yeah. That's just ridiculous. It's way too much of a lead, too. Like, yeah. why? You just spent, like, they established it was going to take cost like millions and millions of dollars to catch this guy again. Mm-hmm. You've got him, but you're like, nope, I'm a man of my honor. I'm going to let you get away again. Right. Uh, so they eventually, they go back to McCandless headquarters. Oh, the, he, meet, uh, he meets back up with Rene Russo. They go to McCandless headquarters to meet with Jonathan Banks and have Jonathan Banks explain the whole plot. Yep. And Rene Russo and Emilio Estevez end up uh, end up going up to the spiritual switchboard to find uh, you know there's a number of double crosses yet again and people trying to kill each other so they end up at the spiritual switchboard which looks like a smoother version of the Satan powered hyperdrive in Event Horizon. Yeah, it's you know clearly whatever is happening here it can only take place at the top of a high rise mm-hmm. in uh, Manhattan, um, aka uh, Atlanta, and. Um, yeah, it raises a lot of questions. Like, I guess the big one is, what if we are actually dealing with spirit? Like, what if the, the uh, this film is is presenting a, a future in which, uh, w- which there is a spiritual reality to the individual, and that's why you have some sort of crazy contraption because there's like an actual ghost soul, you know, like there's an Anthony Hopkins poltergeist trapped in this thing, mm-hmm. and they have to eventually try and slam it into some new meat. Yeah, it really does explore some some Cartesian territory. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I think uh, I, th- I think you can give it its its philosophical credit, um, especially because th- so they go up to the spiritual switchboard and they meet uh, McCandless, that's Anthony Hopkins, 
and he's full on lawnmower man beyond cyberspace. He's just hanging yeah. out in digital worlds with digital diamonds. Uh, our heroes are transported to a giant VR castle inside what looks like a Utah desert. And yep. Anthony Hopkins says, welcome to my mind. And Anthony Hopkins has been faking being alive through video simula simulation the whole time. We find out that mm -hmm. he's in love with Rene Russo and he wants Emilio Estevez's body so that she would love him in return. And so they're they're trying to do the mind transfer on this big thing that looks exactly like a jack, like it's a spike with these balls coming out of the middle of it. And the jack opens up and there's a big crystal inside it. So it's literally crystal energy. Now, the film does get very briefly in just into this, the philosophy uh, or well, not the philosophy, really. I guess you would say the, the ethics of, uh, of bone jacking, mm -hmm. uh, which is kind of interesting because, you know, he's like they bring up the point, which I, I mostly agree with here. Like he was going to Emilio Estevez's character was going to die. Mm -hmm. That was going to happen. And they can't really interfere with that. Like that would be that would really mess up, um, uh, you know, the, the entire time stream. All they can do is steal his body. And then do something with it. And it's just an accident that he got free and that he's escaped. Um, so it, for, to a certain extent, bone jacking is a, is a victimless crime. <laughs> oh, you think so, huh? You're a pro well, bone I mean, jacking, yeah. are you? Well, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm not – I guess I'm, I'm not entirely pro bone jacking. I mean it does symbolize um, you know, the, um, a great deal of unbalanced privilege in the future uh -huh. for the, the few individuals who can afford immortality, which – you know, we, we still see plenty of science fiction that deals with that because that's ultimately a that's a reality we're potentially facing. You know, mm -hmm. as these as longevity um, science improves, um, you know, who's going to be able to afford it? Who gets to uh, have their lifespan extended? Who gets to live forever? You know, sure. Um, so it gets into some of that territory. And that is that is some rich sci fi territory to explore. And they they briefly do it. Yeah, as sort of they they, they kind of half address it. There, there is a yeah. line where. Uh, Emilio Estevez says to Anthony Hopkins, you don't need a new body. You need a new soul. Yeah. yeah and he's like, yeah, whatever meat. Right. Um, yeah. Prepare to have me in your meat. Mm -hmm. And then there's a psychedelic mind transfer scene, but it doesn't complete because Jonathan Banks shows up to kill everybody, I guess. Cause, oh, because he, he just wants Anthony Hopkins to die so that he can take over the business. Right. He needs this to fail. And he's been trying to make it fail the whole time. Yeah. And then the last thing he's going to try is just shooting the crystal, which he does. No, but no, then he shot himself. No, I think Rene Russo shoots oh, yeah, the crystal. Oh, yeah, that's right. She shoots the crystal. She Why does she have a gun? Uh, she gets a gun. She shoots the crystal, oh, stops the transfer. And then there's a question. So Emilio Estevez is there and it's like, uh, is Anthony Hopkins mind in him or is it still his mind? And there's a standoff with Mick Jagger and Jonathan Banks where they're all pointing guns at each other and they're all trying to figure out, is that really Anthony Hopkins or not? And they're going to kill him if it's if it's still Emilio Estevez, but Jagger's going to let him live if it's Anthony Hopkins. And uh, so they do a trick. They're like, what's your personal identification number? And Emilio Estevez starts saying numbers. And Mick Jagger's like, that's right. And so they they shoot Jonathan Banks. Uh, but then you find out there's a very sweet ending where for a moment you are supposed to think, oh, maybe it did complete. And the bad guy won. Anthony Hopkins is now in the meet. 
but there is a sweet ending where Rene Russo and uh, Emilio Estevez are driving off and Mick Jagger comes up to them and like leans into the car window and is like, hey, you know, I know that number you gave was wrong, but I decided to let you live uh, because you're a stand up guy or something. Yeah, it's I mean, it's not a bad ending. Uh, yeah. I, I like the the whole mystery of it. Like, did it work? Did it not work? And mm-hmm. it's like a kind of a fun double cross, ultimately a, a face turn for Mick Jagger's character. But um, it does it does take a long time to get to this point in the picture. It does. And it, it strikes me as like that would be a cool thing in the future if there's some kind of like a prestige attached to the idea of being original meat. You say like, no, 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 my mind is still in the meat that it was originally in. This is not new meat. Well, you know, I mentioned the 90s Outer Limits series earlier. Mm-hmm. This whole film would have made a really solid 45-minute uh, 90s Outer Limit episode. Yes. Uh, instead, it's like twice that length. Uh, and and I think that's the one of the problems here. There is a really funny rock song that plays over the end credits. I had to look this up. It's by the Scorpions. And it's called... Oh, solid. It's called Hit Between the Eyes. And the lyrics include lines like, Late at night when you're all alone, take a ride to the danger zone. <laughs> yeah. But that's it. Uh, as we've been saying, I think this movie's pretty awful. It has some real pleasures in terms of ridiculous dialogue and shots of Mick Jagger looking really funny in certain costumes. Uh, I think it would be better if it was like 30 to 40 minutes shorter, leaned harder into the absurdity. It could could sort of veer into camp classic if it were like that. As it is, it's, a, it's kind of an uncut gem. Uh, it would have been neat if the first time Emilio's character jumps off the bridge and you say, oh, that would have killed a normal person. Mm-hmm. What if he does die and he's immediately bone jacked again? <laughs> bone jacked you know? to a second future. This yeah. time it's 2020. <laughs> Things are even worse. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So I, I agree with all your points there. Um, Oh, here's my my uh, casting workaround. Okay, that I that could have improved things. Okay, Grandel Bush plays our hero, Alex Furlong. Ooh, okay, okay. yeah. Amanda Plummer plays Julie Redland, the love interest. Okay, nice. Yeah, she's a exec at McCandless. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Jonathan Banks and Mick Jagger switch roles, so Banks as Vicendek and Jagger as Michelet, the the corporate uh, guy with Fabergé eggs. Yeah. Uh, Frankie still plays the eagle guy, but in a a far expanded role. I don't know how. They just get more screen time for that character. Oh, he should become like the full on Obi-Wan Kenobi of the movie. He's just like throughout the whole thing as like the sort of the guide character. Yeah. Anthony Hopkins remains McCandles because he's he's fine in (laughs) that. And then the rest just fill in as needed. I don't know. Emilio can play somebody. Um, Yeah. Buster Poindexter can do whatever. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I, I feel like... Get the weirder actors, the more interesting actors up towards the top. Yeah. That's what I want. And cast Mick Jagger more appropriately. Get the mate. <laughs> All right. Well, if you want to get the meat, um, lucky for you, again, this was a $30 million picture, so you can rent it or buy it everywhere. It's it's not as like streamable as part of a service as you might expect, you mm-hmm. know, in terms of like Netflix and Amazon Prime and all. But you can absolutely buy it or rent it anywhere. It's even available on Blu-ray for crying out loud. I wonder if the Blu-ray has the same menus. My God, <laughs> a Blu-ray made in like 2014 or something still has the page just for the URL of Morgan Creek. I bet it has like just a, a loveless um, like yeah you know, film studio template like whatever ev- everything else had that came out that wasn't didn't have like a cult following or you know wasn't a huge hit. It just gets the same treatment as everything else. Hey everybody, write in about your favorite DVD menus. What's the worst yeah. DVD menu you've ever found? 
The, what's yeah, the most would... absurd uh, dedication of an entire menu option you've ever found? Yeah, the the most overambitious animation <laughs> from switching from one page to the next. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd love to hear about it. Or, oh, God, some of these, especially some of the kids' DVDs from back in the day, oh, yeah. they would have games, like really oh, God. like really rough attempts to have some sort of a click-based game on the DVD. It was it was rough. Sometimes they got Easter eggs. You remember those? Where like yep. you'd move the cursor around to a thing that you didn't realize you could move it to, and then it would play a hidden scene or something. Yeah. Oh, man. I hope they're still—I I do love hidden tracks and Easter eggs and stuff, mm-hmm. and I, I hope some of that's still going on. All right. Well, we're going to go ahead and uh, close it out here. But uh, yeah, this was Free Jack. Um, we we hope you enjoyed it. Again, there's, there was a little bit of weirdness in, in this one. Maybe not as weird as some of the other pictures, but still was a lot of fun to talk about. And and I think it is important to you know, to talk about sometimes these, these big budget films, which can sometimes turn out pretty weird, uh, but also can just really uh, fail to set the world on fire. <laughs> All right. Well, if you want to watch more episodes of Weird House Cinema, uh, you can catch it every Friday in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. And you can find that podcast feed wherever you get your podcasts. Wherever that happens to be, just rate, review, and subscribe if you have the ability to do so. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 